Hello and welcome to WA Real. I'm your host, Bryn Edwards. WA Real brings you real and fascinating stories from people here in Western Australia. Stories that help you to take action to be all that you can be and inspire you in that journey. Today's guest is trainee disability support worker and mother of two, Catherine Merritt. Born in Melbourne as the youngest of seven, Catherine went to the Australian Institute of Sport in, in Canberra um, pursuing netball until her, her back injury cut this short. Following this, she worked in a number of call centres and then went travelling, where she met her now husband, Oliver. In July 2011, she moved to WA. In May 2016, four months after the birth of her second child, she was admitted to the Fiona Stanley Mother and Baby Ward, where she stayed on and off for seven weeks, dealing with postnatal depression. Today, she's, a tra- she's training to become a disability support worker and is a happy and content mother of two. Catherine, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bryn. So there you go. So you were the youngest of seven. Mm. Wow. Was, what was that like? Pretty amazing, to be honest. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've got uh, five older brothers and one sister. So um, to be the last of, of that and also the second girl, I was very much celebrated and, and loved. Um, and I think, you know, given the examples that were going on around me with my siblings and, you know, as you can imagine, very competitive um, kind of sibling rivalry that happens, you know, it helped me physically um, um, in life um, and I, you know, wanted to be stronger than my brothers and faster than them and, you know, my sister was very loving and nurturing and so it was almost like having two mothers um, and I guess uh, always someone there to pick you up when you fall. Right. You know, always someone there to. Big supportive network exactly. around you. Yeah. Fantastic. And uh, it was quite a sporty family if I understand. Yes, Your yes. dad played. Yeah, my dad played uh, AFL football for Richmond in the 60s, 63, 64, and his career was cut short by a knee injury. Um, and he also captained the Melbourne University Blues before that, where <clears> he was doing his law degree on scholarship. So, yeah, pretty. And then, you know, brothers had varying successes at, at varying sports, you know, some brilliant at tennis, some brilliant at football, um, and, and some, you know, made it pretty far. So good pedigree. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Now, I always ask people about why they came over to Western Australia or this, that, and the other. How, how was, as you grew up, how was Western Australia perceived from somebody who was growing up in, in Victoria? Uh, that's really interesting. Um, so, you know, through sport and netball, I, I did a fair bit of travelling. Um, I didn't know much about it as a young child, um, but, you know, when you get exposed to state leagues and state netball, um, you do a bit of travelling and I never actually <clears throat> competed in WA. It was one of the few states I'd never been to. It was so a bit like uncharted territory, just seemed really far away. I, I met other girls that were from WA who seemed amazing and fantastic and, um, you know, loving sort of being a beach girl myself. I'd done a lot of Queensland and, um, you know, New South Wales, but I'd never explored WA. What what was your view of it? Was there any? How how was West Australia perceived? Uh, a bit of a massive country town, <laughs> um, you know, a little bit maybe backwards um, in terms of 
you know, um, multiculturalism and that sort of thing. Um, but having lived here for six years, that certainly changed my perception. Yeah. <laughs> so you went to the Institute of Sport. That, that's quite a thing. That must have been quite a thrill. What was it like being there? Ah, amazing. Unbelievable. I was there from 1998 to 2000, so in the lead-up to the Sydney 2000 Olympics. As you can imagine, lots of funding put into the yeah. up-and-coming athletes and just an environment of extreme positivity, you know, your best athletes, your best physios, your best, best coaches, best nutrition. Um, and, you know, as a young person, um, being in that environment is pretty addictive and pretty amazing. Addictive in what way? <laughs> um, well, you know, it's hard not to feel great. Not only are you at your fittest and your strongest, um, you know, there's a lot of people there that are going to university as well as training and so, you know, there's a lot of mental stimulation um, and as you can imagine for a lot of teenagers going into their 20s, there's a fair bit of visual stimulation. There's right. a lot of... <laughs> uh, <laughs> of fit you know, bodies. <laughs> yeah, a lot of fit bodies um, and, you know, very social um, and just a lot of fun, a lot of fun, a lot of pranks, Um you know, there was a lot of different banter going on between sporting teams and yeah. it was just, and, I, you know, being in a netball team of 14 girls, you become like sisters pretty quickly, um, which is good and bad. And, um, you know, those connections still ring true today. Some of these girls are my best friends that live all over Australia. Excellent. So very blessed. So your time at the Institute of Sport was cut short by a back injury. What? That must have been pretty heartbreaking. It was. It was. Um, you know, I was there in order to make the Australian under-21 team for the World Youth Cup in Wales of 2000 and, you know, all the training, all of the games, everything was leading up to that point. So two and a half years spent focused on that one goal and then to be cut short a couple of months previous because I had this ongoing back injury that just kept causing me a lot of strain and, you know, physios were trying to do everything they can. Um, Pilates was relatively new and a big thing in the centre there, so I got exposed to a lot of that good stuff. But um, even just travelling, my back would seize up after, the, you know, short plane rides. So how was I going to be, you know, 24 hours? Exactly. Um, and, you know, I guess going from that high of um, being in that team with that one goal, um, feeling fantastic and fit, to the low that comes with, um, you know, injury and, you know, a, elite sport cut short. Yeah. It was pretty intense. Is it quite an abrupt, was that a quite an abrupt end? Was it like, oh, you're back, injured, you're out the team, you're out the institute? Yeah, well, um, it, it, I had two and a half years there and, um you know, I had a lot of support and a lot of encouragement during that time. Um, once I was injured, I, you know, I didn't, there was no point for me continuing the, the scholarship um, because it just kept controlling every part of my, my sport. So um, there was a little bit of that, you know, you get go from this supporting, nurturing environment and then you have to deal with a lot of stuff by yourself. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you feel a lot of pressure because everybody's been riding that wave with you, your family, your friends. Um, and yeah, it's hard. 
really how, how do you look upon it now? Uh, I just see it as part of the journey now. Yeah. Um, I think it was certainly a catalyst for a lot of things that came after it, but okay. it doesn't it doesn't impact me at all, um, I guess, because of where I am today. Um, but back then it's been a roller coaster ever since that point, yeah. really, for me. Yeah. So how did you go about picking yourself up and – because it must have been a huge part of, you know, your identity as mm, Catherine. Mm. Catherine was an airball player and now you have to go and find a new identity. Exactly. How did you go You know, and like, you know, my whole high school would write stories about me in the monthly newsletter and other high school, you know, friends knew, um, family, friends, everybody. So, you know, and I guess I did identify a lot of myself, you know, you don't know who you are in your early 20s really. Yeah. So, you know, to have something like that um, taken away from you is is a real shock to the system. So I, I kind of focused my attention then on more career. I had deferred uni and I never went back to co- complete my degree, but I, I went to call centres and it's interesting actually because that really suited me because you have, you know, I quickly became a team leader of a team of 10 to 11 people, um, very much, you know, is all about motivation because it's a challenging role um, and, you know, people, it's a, it, you are coaching and mentoring. So mm. it wasn't that far removed for me and I could totally be myself and be celebrated for that. And so it was actually the perfect thing to move into. Um Certainly there was a loss with, and I know, you know, continued to play the sport and I reassociated myself with the Victorian Institute of Sport and did a lot of work there and got strong again and then raptured my Achilles tendon. So right. I think the universe is telling me something at that point at 22. Um, but, um, yeah, it was then a journey of self-discovery really for the next, and continues, but certainly for the next 15 years after that. Yeah. Yeah. So you worked in the call centre and then, then after a while you went travelling? Yeah. And I mean, through the call centres, I, I got a lot of on-the-job training. You know, they do a lot of certification through um, vocational education. So I did a Cert 3 and 4 in customer contact. Then I became a um, team leader, after which I became a trainer, did a diploma of leadership in a contact centre. So I got a lot of exposure um, to business there. And, um, you know, that that was awesome um and then you know had all these savings and uh, my dad was saying oh I think you should invest in property and I was saying well everybody else has done this overseas travel and I I had traveled parts of the world through my sport but very you know very insular and and you know very much focused on yeah exactly exactly so then um I just had this you know feeling in my bones I had to go traveling at age 27 and um I, a girlfriend of mine was having a ball in Whistler, Canada, and she was also a very sporty person um, and, you know, very kind of fun girl. And I just thought, oh, I might have to follow those footsteps. Yeah. So I typed into Google overseas working holidays uh, and there was a company called Overseas Working Holidays, which was an Australian <laughs> company. Super. Yeah, and I was able to... Um, do some phone interviews and some make, meet and greet interviews in the city. And then um, I was appointed uh, a, uh, a Crystal Resort representative, a UK tour operator in Banff. We started our training in Breckenridge for two weeks and then I got 
position to Banff. Again, amazing, you know, yeah. and another experience that I guess I think I was always trying to emulate this this sporting team, you know, fun, happy-go-lucky lifestyle that I'd experienced throughout my youth yes. and then sporting career. So definitely got it again. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this, this experience was, um, you know, probably the greatest of my life. Um, just in terms of complete freedom, you know, yes. um, uh, being growing up in Australia, experiencing beaches, some of the best beaches in the world, you know, you think you're very lucky and then you go and be completely shocked by terrain you've never seen in Canada, um, in the Rocky Mountains, and you just realise how perfect Mother Nature is. So that was incredible. And, again, straight away, it's all about the physicality. So it's all about the moving the body. Um, you know, I was pretty – I'd only been skiing twice in my life. Yeah. Uh, it only took a couple of weeks for me to get on the black runs and, you know, just having some of the best days of my life with some of the greatest people that I've ever met. So that was pretty incredible. Yeah. <laughs> and then from there you came to London? From there I um, – I went to London. Yep. So – after I think a winter season is about five months, um, I had a visa then to a working visa to work in London where I, I was lucky enough to stay with one of my lovely cousins and that was a real shock to the system. Because, in what way? Well, I had gone from being completely carefree in, you know, one of the most beautiful, stunning places in the world. Clean, fresh air. Clean, fresh air. Fitter than probably, probably even fitter than I was in my Nepal career in a different way, yeah. you know. And I was just having the time of my life with these amazing people from all over the world. Then to hit London at the very start of the GFC. Yeah. And then, you know, trying to kind of swim my way to find my place to get a job, which, you know, gave me purpose and drive and then find friendships which I've never had problems with before, but I all of a sudden just hit this brick wall. Yes. Um, because it just didn't come naturally or easily. And uh, th there was nothing there that was already established. So, um, yeah, that was a big shock. Now, this is the first time you've had a big down. Mm. And I understand this is when you, you went to see a doctor to start with. Is that right? Yeah. I, I, I was, you know, talking a lot to my family back home my sister, my dad, and my mom, and um, there was a point where, you know, I was working in a recruitment company as a sales trainer, you know, pretty aggressive environment, you know, um, sort of kill or be killed, you know, as you can imagine, um, and it was get there was a point where I, I couldn't actually get out of bed to go to work, to get on the tube and go to work. Physically, I was unable to get myself up. And, you know, I was talking to my parents and that, you know, obviously very worried for Melbourne and said, you know, go and see the GP and, um, you know, even family members. I know my sister was contemplating coming to get me. Um, and I went to see the GP uh, through the NHS system and that was the first time uh, a GP said to me, I think you might be depressed, um, obviously combination of depression and anxiety and, you know, this an antidepressant and a um, a formal sort of uh, cognitive behavioural program could help. 
So the NHS have these mental health professionals and, you know, there was a workbook and I got on the medication and um, slowly but surely things got better. I was really determined at that point, given the experiences that I'd had, that I was not going to come back to Australia in a slump because I knew I could possibly never get back up again. So I, I wanted, you you get- well, having that supportive environment I talked to, to you about with my family and this, just this love, you know, um, real strong attachment to my mum, certainly for the first five years, you know, I was breastfed till I was two, six siblings, loads of love and support. Um, it, it, it is the greatest thing in the world, but also it can be enabling in a way because um, there's always the security blanket. What happens when the security blanket's not there? So if I was to come back at the point of my lowest, I could just be, I felt like I could just be in this cycle of depression and I wouldn't be able to find the internal resources to get back up myself. Right. So I, I so said. Coming back to Australia would mean that then the big family would make you feel all right and, and patch over some of the things that need to be faced. Is that, exactly. is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, I'd probably be okay, but um, I really felt determined to try and build back up myself and see if I could do it and then come back having had the most incredible experience overseas and then keep rebuilding from there. Right. So I, I stayed and I did this program with the NHS, which was actually quite brilliant. Um, you sound surprised. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it was amazing. I mean, they're not psychologists. These guys are mental health professionals, mm. so it's not, um, you know, six-year degree or anything, but um, obviously it's come from years of um, analysis and professionals putting it all together. Uh, and I would see someone once a week, I think, and do the do the activities in the workbook, which were really simple, but um, it just changed. Can you give us an example of one of Yeah, sure. Um, you know, they, it would say a friend has called you up and said they can't make it to dinner on Tuesday. Um, you know, how do you feel about this? And you know, you put down your response and, and think about it. And at that time, probably they don't like me. You know, I'm not right. I'm, I'm not good enough or they don't want to be my friend. And then, you know, what if they just had a legitimate appointment and they couldn't make it? And it's this rational thought process of, you know, they've, they've cancelled their dinner. It's it's not personal. <laughs> it's yeah. not about me. But were you, were you finding that um, these, you know, uh, stories were going on in your head. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think um, some of this stuff potentially has hap- has happened over my life, but I've always had a, a few masks given the sport, the physical stuff, um, you know, been a fairly high achiever um, where I've been able to just throw the mask on and, and right. you know, whereas this time I, I couldn't do that. And um because the family wasn't there, yeah. you weren't playing sport. Yeah. You're in a city when you're just one of many other million, no more special than anybody else. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, um, you know, and I'd also met somebody in Canada and that was another a kind of, pu- you know, pull to stay because uh, there was something quite special about about him and I, I thought, you know, if I go back to Australia, that's it. Yeah. I don't know where this is going to go. Was he in England at the same time, though? So I met him in Canada. He'd and been 
Ollie. Ollie, my husband. husband. (laughs) I met him in Canada and, um, you know, that was an incredible experience given one of the most romantic destinations on the planet Um, and he he was uh, extremely uh, lovely visually and and surprisingly as a person, you know, and that was really hard. I sort of, you know, I was waiting for the arrogance to come out, you know, how can someone this good looking and this physically fit be so warm and loving and caring and it was just, yeah, blowing my mind. And, of course, you know, the other boys that were there were really boys, so this was an actual man in his 30s and that that was also refreshing. Um, So that romance, you know, got fast-tracked as it does on these seasonal working holidays, um, you know, and it's also very much a bubble environment. So you wonder, is this real or not? Mm. Um, then, of course, he um, he went across to do another season where he was planning on going in Turkey where he, you know, did sort of water sports management, wakeboarding, um, windsurfing type stuff. And I had my visa to go to England and we said, let's just see what happens. You go your way, we go my way. And I guess given that we were more mature, we knew that didn't mean the end, but it was also important for us to do that, to yeah. separate and um, and do what we had planned to do as individuals. Yeah. So you're in London, you're working, the boyfriend's in Turkey. <laughs> <laughs> you're working through this book. Mm. Did, you, did this... Um, well, actually, what what was it like taking um, taking medication? Uh, it was, you know, it's pretty low dosage um, considering what I know about it now. Um, pretty average, I guess, for people mm. that are initially diagnosed. But, um, you know, um, and at that point, I guess, given that it was a fairly fresh canvas, it, it after a few weeks it had a, a good effect on me. In what way? Uh, it was just... You know, less of those thoughts, less of those negative thought processes, less of, less of, um, you know, the ability to actually physically get up and, um, fight the symptoms that way. So it was, you know, certainly not the answer, but certainly gave me the strength to do what I needed to do. Right. To get well at that time. So, so you, you go through this program. Did it get you to where you needed to be? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Um, and then I went travelling a little bit with a girlfriend around Europe, which was fantastic and sort of what I needed. And on that trip, we went and saw Ollie as well. Were you off the medication? No, time? no, I was still on it. Um, and certainly, you know, I wasn't. It was different. I was different. You know, in what uh, way? Oh well, I guess in Canada when I met Ollie, I was in the best form of my life. You know, um, I was as happy as I'd ever been all the time. And now, you know, I was pretty flat. And, of course, the medication was taking time to kick in, so, you know, every day it would be better. But also, you know, my thoughts weren't 100% clear um, and I was very self-conscious and, um, you know, he'd met this confident, gregarious, fun-loving girl and then to have sort of kind of this flat self-conscious, unconfident girl was a bit of a change. Yes. Um, and, I mean, prior to that I had I had told him about it when I was in London and he was in Turkey. I said, I said, you know, 
things aren't going great. And, you know, I was thinking about going back to Australia and he was in a bit of shock and he thought I was dating somebody else. (laughs) And I just thought, you know what, I'm just going to be honest. I told him, well, this is the reason why, you know, I've been diagnosed with depression and anxiety. I'm I'm on medication. And he said, "So, so what? You know, he was really quite nonchalant about it, which was bizarre. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so you go travelling with a, a friend. Mm-hmm. You go and see Ollie. Yeah. We move on a few years. Yeah, then I actually got another job in – he was doing another season. <clears> got <throat> another job in Canada back where we met in Banff. Yeah. Um, and he was doing another season there and – I sort of I set up I went there earlier than he came for his winter season. So I set up a life again on this journey to get back to my best form. Um I, you know, I was a wedding coordinator, which was pretty cool. You know, got back into my fitness, you know, found a really great group of friends. Um and I went there on my own terms. Um so, you know, realizing that he was going to be coming back, but that it wasn't because of him that I was there. You know, bonus if we got to a good place and something happened. Um, but also he'd he'd been through a bit with me at this point. Yeah. So um, it was more for me, I guess, to, again, finish on that strong note. And um, he got, came back and things were a bit tentative to start with. And then, you know, he could see, you know, m- you know my my essence again coming out and he... Hmm. You know, obviously positivity can be fairly magnetic. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So you then co- you still overseas, then him and I officially together at this point. Yeah. We've been through a lot already and um, we did another season together in Turkey, which was pretty good um, And because he, he was getting sort of management roles there. It was pretty cool to experience that I, I went over as a nanny which was awesome as well because i love kids um and it was a beautiful resort again great people um you know i was i was still fighting a bit you know still there was stuff that i still you know was struggling with a bit um with the mental side but you know it was um it was better and then we went to England together and the plan was that we were going to apply for a spousal visa for him to come and move to Australia. And that was a fairly intense process. Yeah. So we'd been together a couple of years now and um, we both we, we lived in the Midlands um, with a lovely, a lovely friend of Ollie's um, who put us up um, a place called Ashby de la Juche. And um, we both got jobs and... Again, my confidence started soaring again because I quickly became friends with his university friends and, you know, they were they were very fun, very sort of, ha- you know, happy. So your confidence is soaring. What are, I'm interested. We, we, we've seen it soar and drop and mm-hmm. soar. What are some of the elements here then that, that, that are around, that need to be around you for your confidence mm-hmm. to soar at this point? Uh, well, I think. Friends. Social, yeah, that's yeah. a big one, a big one. Um, because uh, you know, I, I thrive um, <clears throat> in social environments and just love people. Um, 
friends, having, you know, a stable job and a purpose, um, feeling supported, um, you know, the fitness side of things. Um, yeah, I, I'm very, I, I make friends pretty easily um, and friends quickly become family. So yeah, those are the probably essential elements. Super stuff. So then I understand you come to Australia, you're in Melbourne for a while, but then you decide to come over here to Western Australia. Why, why Western <laughs> Australia? So you've got, you've gone back to, you've gone back to Melbourne, yeah. uh, where there's big families there, mm. your big support blanket. Yeah. I take it you've gone back in a good place mm. with your man. Mm. Look at me. I'm good. Mm. I've been on quite the journey. Mm. Um, so why not stay in, in Victoria? Was there still the ongoing challenge of it's me? I'm making my way um, in the world. It was why, me. Why I guess, uh, you know, there's, you know, I sort of have this vision of this umbilical cord with my my family in a way, certainly with my parents. You know, my mum, I was I was breastfed till I was well over two, um, and our connection was very strong. Given that I was a baby, and she's like very nurturing, kind of connected to the source type of woman. Um, and then, you know, so there's there's that side of it where. You know, I will always be connected to it. And I guess that's the success of, of, of my childhood is that, you know, I feel that love when I'm well. I feel that love even when they're not around. That's, I guess, what every parent hopes for, mm. you know, that, that their children have the courage to be fearless and also to feel loved and to give love. And, you know, those two things really mm. closely linked to well-being. So, um, we came back to Melbourne and even before I met Ollie, I knew I wasn't a big city girl. So separate to the family stuff, as much as I love Melbourne, you know, mad footy, Richmond supporter, go the Tigers. <laughs> and, um, you know, I love my family and my friends there. You know, it's a big city. Um, it's pretty intense. Um, there's lots of traffic and, you know, you've got to drive. I mean, there's some beautiful beaches. We grew up on the beach, but you've really got to drive to get to the best beaches. Um, so I sort of always knew that. And then I met Ollie and he's definitely not a big city guy. <laughs> so when we got to Melbourne, we thought, well, give it a go. And, you know, he, as I knew, embraced my family. They embraced him very quickly, as overwhelming as it would have been for him. Nice. Um but he's a pretty amazing guy. So, um, yeah, we just we knew it wasn't for us as a couple. And and when he arrived in Australia before that year we did in Melbourne, he came into Queensland. We went up a bit, did the Sunshine Coast, and we kind of camped in a van very slowly, mm. did the coastline of Queensland or southern Queensland and New South Wales and Victoria. So we were looking for a vibe. We were looking to see where we would successfully make it as a couple and you know as individuals and where we would feel feel that vibe be able to um yeah so when we're in Melbourne you know we were doing little trips here and there but we'd never been to Perth we had friends close friends in um Perth um well certainly friends volleys I hadn't met before (laughs) and um we went over for a week's holiday um house sat in Frio and we were just blown away and we just thought this is it <laughs> you know, it took yeah. sort of six seven Pretty days that, it? it is around about the Christmas period so obviously you know 30 plus weather every day 
the most stunning beaches we'd ever experienced. Um, just amazing. And this was only really Fremantle and Perth. We didn't have time to do Margaret River or, you One know, the, the upper, upper coast. And then we said that's the place. So our plan was in six months to save, tie up all our loose ends and then to drive across the Nullarbor, again quite slowly, camping on the side of the road, and uh, move to Perth. The ultimate Australian adventure across exactly. the Nullarbor. Yeah. Cool. So then you come here, you make WA your home, you get married, Ollie finds work, now works for Rotten Express, um, life seems settled, and then you have your first child. Yes. Um, was there any um, uh, depression, anxiety post the first child? Absolutely, yes. And, um, yeah, great question, Bryn. Um, I mean, I kind of, you know, in the lead up and getting as much knowledge as you <clears> do, <throat> you really can't ever prepare. But um, I knew that I was susceptible to postnatal depression. Um, but I also because what had happened in London yeah, and things. Yes, and uh, but I also were you, were you still on medication leading up to it. Uh, I had periods of not, um, and then you know when I got pregnant, you know, as, you know, being a father, um, hormones go pretty crazy for the mother, and um, that happened to me. <laughs> so I did have something to level me out, and um, you know, which was a big decision. You know, because yeah. you don't want to obviously affect the um, the growing bubs, um, but it certainly helped throughout my pregnancy. And then, in what way? Well, similarly, um, it just it just levelled me out. Um, you know, so you weren't feeling extreme highs and yeah, lows. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, you know, it was much more rational. Um, was able to you know just just be more level headed. Throughout that time, and then I had I had my little baby. I had my little baby boy. The birth was obviously um, not the plan, but we were pretty easy going about that. We didn't have a birth plan, and it was pretty much you know it was very loved up. Um, you know, I had a, an epidural, and um, you know he was he was in a bit of stress. Um, I didn't have the I had planned to have a birth at the birthing centre in a spa, you know, as you do yes. in the birthing pool, and um, that didn't sort of happen because he was he he was uh, under a bit of stress, and um, so and did a you know giving birth naturally, but with um, an epidural, and and yeah, that was that was you know a beautiful time, and Ollie and I were very emotional and very excited. And my mum came over, which was lovely, and, you know, a few friends came over. In the next couple of months, my sister came over. And over time, it just got harder and harder. In what way? Well, breastfeeding was tough. Um, uh, my son had upper lip tie, uh, lower lip tie, and he never really latched, and I didn't know what I was doing, and I went to the lactation consultant, and she, she didn't make me feel great about it. Um, just kept fighting the good fight with a, a nipple shield and, you know, I think he was hungry a lot. So he was very wakeful and sleep deprivation over time is hard for anyone. You know, it's a just really challenging time. You do get through it. But when you, sometimes when you're breastfeeding and 
only know this given that I had a good experience with my daughter, you sort of get this surge of hormones that really help you through that period. Right. But um, so nature's yeah, way. yeah, exactly. But I don't think I was getting them at that point because we we just had such problems feeding, and he was always really hungry. And um, then uh, also my in laws, my beautiful family from England, my husband's family came over. We had a lovely three weeks there. <clears throat> Once all that died down, you know, the celebration of the mm. newborn, and, and then you realise this is it. Now you're in for the long haul. Now you're in the for the long haul, and I hadn't realised. I did have a few friends in Perth when I, but I, I think I was so, I, I was loving the freedom of Perth and, and not having the big family. I didn't really tap into a social network right. prior to kids. <clears throat> so I didn't have, you know, embedded friendships, you know, you know, girlfriends that I was having wines with once weekly or anything like, like that. And um, after my baby, you know, you have your mother's group and you try to connect with them and, and they were all fabulous girls. But um I think it just it just hit me like a ton of bricks hormonally and um another you know bout of depression and, and loneliness and the sleep deprivation and again the security blanket of I grew up with, you know, big family, lots of brothers and sisters, aunties and uncles who become your surrogate parents, uh, cousins, you know, in Melbourne and in other states and just with this village. Yes. And so, you know, bang, I am a mother and I don't have this village. I haven't been nurturing it prior to having kids. So, of course, I don't have it after yes. the birth of my, my boy. And um, that was hard, mm. really tough. And so how how did it present itself uh, at this point? You know, um, it's a funny one. Like it's such it's such a different experience for every individual. But depression and anxiety, you, you are stuck in this bubble. And even though other people can probably see, you know, the dark clouds and maybe say, you know, particularly my husband who knows me best, you know, health and fitness has always made you feel good. Um, going out and meeting a girlfriend has always made you feel good. And networking in that spaces made you feel good, um, getting out into nature. Somebody can tell you those things, but you are so stuck in your own little bubble, you have no idea. So you turn away from all the good yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Whereas, you know, now I know you've the only way to beat your symptoms is, is to fight against them and do the complete opposite to what your brain is telling you to do. And of course, I had obsessions over my son's sleep, you know, I was you know, because he wasn't sleeping so great at night and, uh, you know, I was so convinced that the the day nap had to be at home and, you know, just all of a sudden these restrictions on your life just because you've had a child, you know, I put myself into a jail. And are they real restrictions or are they restrictions that you're putting on yourself? Absolute false. They're not real at all. It's all internal. It's like this internal jail in your brain or your head where you are believing your own thoughts and things potentially from your past come up. Uh, uh, you know, um, I don't know if we discussed, Bryn, but my mum after that, you know, having seven children, being a very nurturing mother at, at aged five, um, when I went off to school, the youngest of the seven was diagnosed with bipolar. Your mother was? Yes. Mm. So that was interesting how did that 
was that was that an uh, um, an openly discussed thing or not in the first ten years really? Um, and and how did it play I, out? At, I didn't oh. know really why. You know, she she was in bed most of the time, <laughs> not all the time. You know, during these episodes, and I didn't know why. You know, um, she was different, or you know, potentially maybe blamed myself. You know lashed out, you know, was very angry at times as a child. You know, my dad had these funny nicknames for me. He would call me Luffly Wuffly because when I was lovely I was pretty engaging and then Horrible Guffle where, you know, I was angry and aggressive and, you know, those things continued in my adulthood really. It was Mm. black and white and, you know, now that I see from a different perspective potentially a lot of that was from not understanding what was going on as a as a young little kid where, um, you know, it makes me pretty emotional now because I still feel this deep love and connection with my mum. It's, mm. it's, it's dead, always been there, but it's just different. Um, and a lot of people, you know, um, they say, oh, you know, you've got depression, anxiety, you've got bipolar, so that's, you know, it's nothing to be ashamed of and, and she is a real success story. Um, I really found out when I was 18. Right. So <clears throat> when I had a lot of the... Do you think life would have been a bit different if she'd been more open and honest about it? Maybe. Yeah. We are now. We are now. And <laughs> I'm still, you know, I can tell pretty quickly about mum. Um, still one of the ones that, you know, I'll say to you, you know, how are you going, mum? I haven't heard from you for a while. Um, you know, do you want to get yourself to the pools and do a, a bit of aqua or, um, you know, winters are quite tough for her. Um, but she's a success story, you know, and there's been quite a few years of um, changes in medication. Some of the stuff she was on earlier was really strong and, you know, they wouldn't ad- administer it now. Right. And then when she changed meds, um, she would go through, you know, there's periods of where she went to hospital mm. Um because that's a real abruption, abrupt sort of change to the system. And now, you know, she's on a lot less meds and um, much more natural stuff. Hmm. Um, but, you know, I wouldn't have it done any other way. You know, it's hard not to, because I'm in such a good place now, I just feel grateful for the experience. that I've, I mean, there is no one in the world that I know other than my mother that is more compassionate and smells the roses more you know and that's again a testament to having seven children you know if you're not if you're not happy to sit and just be you're going to struggle having loads of kids (laughs) you know so she always um you know she's very connected to the source mum but I think being you know so people talk about empaths there's a spiritual side to it too you know when you are that connected empaths empathetic people can feel the pain of other people other around people, them, yes. the world. You know, it's pretty. it can be quite intense for some people and I think that may have been part of my DNA as well growing up. Right. Um, and I've only now, realized, you know, starting to... Um, realise what these feelings are. What these feelings are and, and a lot of people who have never experienced it, um, you know, they just put somebody in a box and say that person's really negative, they're bringing me down, I, I, I'm just not going to spend my time with them, she's just going to shut them off versus, um, you know, we've all had our struggles and some people can actually put on a bit of a protective 
armour and just listen and let that person be. And, and that can often be the catalyst for change. Mm. It's tough. It's really tough. But, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. That's a whole other story, I think, there from go. there. <laughs> so um, you put yourself in the self-imposed prison or jail, as you call mm. it. You're, you're obsessing over your, your son's sleep. Yeah, and, and also grass is always greener. My life would be so much greater in Melbourne with all these cousins and these aunties and uncles yes. and sharing the load and having all this emotional support and, you know, um, I guess blaming external factors, you know, just totally yeah. lost in my own prison. You, you're and, down on Perth and... Yeah. No, I mean, the thing was everything I loved about Perth was all of a sudden taken away from me. So the beach, you know... Suddenly felt like I couldn't go to the beach. I right. felt like I couldn't, um, couldn't, you know, be fit and active anymore. And yeah, it's all bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> and then all of a sudden, boom, second child yeah. comes along. Yep. So second child comes along, and ironically, you know, she wasn't planned, but um, she, again, another little bit probably more complicated birth. Um, she was posterior and again had a, an epidural. I got induced with her, had an epidural, and that was that was really tough. And the recovery was tough, both births actually. Um, you know, you have, um, you know, this, uh, people talk about seizures being tough. Sometimes natural births could be tough too because my kids are really big with really big heads <laughs> and uh, neither of them came out the same way. So... Um, I was in a lot of pain and, um, you know, that made everything hard because you're breastfeeding, lying down a lot, you know, even walking is tough. And, um, again, not having that support. Well, it was different with Heidi because she breastfed really well. She just, from the moment she was born, she latched on and I think those hormones kept me going. And I, you know, my husband would probably tell you in those first few months I felt complete. I was just... This is amazing. It was a new feeling I hadn't felt with my son and, and he, you know, being a couple of years older than Heidi, my son's very nurturing and um, it was a fairly beautiful experience. But after a while, you think you've got to do more, you've got to be more, you've got to. Where's that coming from? Internal dialogue. That's been, that's been you know, this jail we talk about, Bryn, that's been my nemesis um and I, I don't know whether some of it comes from some of the things i heard my mum say to herself growing Such up as... i can't do it i'm not good enough i'm not a good mum i'm not a you know and me which telling her right which is her own yeah. episodes playing out yeah which and and me in those struggles i, I used to keep thinking i'm just going to i'm just like mum you know i'm just going to have the same outcome as mum you know it's hereditary it's what I know. This is going to be my life. So I almost told myself, you know, I <laughs> predetermined it. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't really set myself up for for success. Um, and then, you know, obviously sleep deprivation. You know, it just start of starts to hit. Um, and then you know you've got he was two and a half, I think, two months, two years and four months. Samuel and my husband and running around, um, trying to do it all and then, you know, thinking I've got to be fit, that will help me and do and then that doesn't help your milk supply um, and breastfeeding gets hard, you know, and it's, 
it's an amazing journey breastfeeding it's the most beautiful thing but you know it's a journey in itself and um I also was given a pain reliever after Heidi in, in hospital. It was a pain reliever called Tramadol and that uh, I think interfered with my antidepressant and we later found out that I experienced with the sleep deprivation something called uh, Cetraline syndrome. And, and what's that? Well, um, it's sort of it's hard to explain. It's like extreme paranoia. Um, you know, everything is heightened. Um, and, and this is good. This is happening in the lead up to mm. before you go. Yep. Start smoking people. cigarettes. You know, I couldn't sleep. So, um, so have a cigarette. Yeah. Have a cigarette. <laughs> That's 3 a.m. in the morning. Yeah. Um, you know, and of course, how great is that for breastfeeding a little bubba? You know, I'd obviously, it's just trying to. And, I, you know, it got to the point where I just was not coping. You know, I was, my husband didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do. I ended up sort of having a bit of a breakdown at my son's daycare. And she said, I think you need to go to the hospital and, and there's things we can do to help with your daycare funding, but you uh, think you should go to the doctor. Went to the doctor and, you know, broke down again. And I had the two kids with me, so it was pretty, pretty hard. Uh, pretty full on and that's when uh, the doctor said there is a unit a couple of units in Perth that uh, mother and baby units for such things and um, you go in with your infant so with Heidi yeah um, and you know she did made a few calls and I was admitted that night did you ever think of going to see the doctor beforehand did it take somebody at the daycare to say I think you need to do this I think I was I, I, I was going to the doctor, but I think I was trying to say all the right things and do all the right things and, you know, just pushing it under the carpet, which a lot mm. of people do, um, because I, on the surface, may have looked like I was functioning. It got to the point where I wasn't really functioning. Yeah. So, I, I, you know, there was no real other choice. I didn't feel like I had any other choice mm. at that point. Um, so you were admitted that night? Yeah. What was it like um, being told, right, you're going to go to this um, ward? Did it feel like relief or someone's going to look after me now or what? Oh, it was scary, really scary. I didn't know where I was going or what I was doing and I wasn't in a good place anyway. So um, I just had to go with it, you know, and, you know, I was saying to Ollie on the, on the drive in there because, of course, you go involuntary, there's involuntary and voluntary, and right. I was going in there voluntarily, um, you know, you know, but it was so irrational that anything would have been pretty scary. And yeah. I can remember that first night just pacing, not able to sleep still, just in this really dark place and suddenly kind of... What was going through your mind? I was, I was really distanced from Heidi, and the nurses later told me that Heidi was, you know, a baby that was really under a lot of uh, distress coming in. You know, I, I was in my own world. I didn't even notice that, but yeah. that she really wasn't in a great place and um, I was going outside and smoking. Well, physically? And- uh, she was just very unsettled, you know, right. crying a lot and, um, yeah, uh, given the lead up to going into hospital, I can see why now. Mm. It would have been pretty full on. 
so you so you're you're in the ward um what what went on over the ensuing weeks uh so the the ward was um you know in your first two nights they give you sleeping tablets so you sort of get knocked out and suddenly you start to feel like a completely different person you've had two proper sleep. <laughs> you've had two nights and they're sleep. looking after high then yeah the nurse is attending to the baby if right. needed um and then and is the baby in the same room as you yeah right in yeah. a cot um facility brand new fantastic nurses fantastic um the whole kind of management of everybody and the cases are is led by psychiatrists and then you know that filters down into psychologists um occupational therapists um you know nurses and what have you and so after about a week and and are you, you receiving know, like regular counseling each day or Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, you um, you sort of have a team, of people also a social worker. So it is you know based on the individual, their needs, their the circumstances that brought them there. They're then trying to find a diagnosis so that they can treat it. You know, what, what's the medication doing? You know, is it working? Is it not? Getting some of that counselling. Um, you know, there's daily group work where you're sitting there with other mothers, and I couldn't believe the beauty of the other mothers and, and that's part of the what do you mean the beauty of the other mothers? Oh, I just you know, everybody was so authentic and they were all just very, very real and, you know, there was lawyers, teachers, um who were similarly on the wall. Yeah. The other mothers that were were really struggling and, you know, obviously had their own stories, completely different to mine, but also so you connect with them. And again, that's that feeling for me. All of a sudden, it just felt like being enveloped by love. You know, I had yes. the, I had the social aspect with these mothers, relatability, authenticity. You know, and their babies. The village is now growing. Nurses looking after me. You know, counselling and all of that. Um, I felt like I was in a health retreat. Right. <laughs> Friend, once again, yeah. You no, know, they were trying to tap into what. My, my soul was all about, you know, they talked about the fact that I'd done personal training before. I took the group, um, you know, we did a bit of a personal training class and I was... And you led it. Yeah, I led it. Um, and we talked about, um, you know, there was a gym on site, so they were really encouraging me to get fit and um, did a lot of mindfulness, which is a bit of a buzzword, um, just simple stuff, really simple stuff. And, you know, all the counselling, much of it was done in a sort of glass bowl so you could see your baby and your baby could see you. It was rolling around on the mat next to you with the nurses looking after them. So, you know, they're encouraging you to breastfeed. They're encouraging you to be with your baby, play with your baby. We did, you know, activities with our babies as well. Um, But, of course, on the other side, while I was getting well in in a completely supportive environment you know my husband was trying to keep things together at home with my three-year-old uh well two and a half year old son yes so you know and also having to stop work and look after him solely um you know that was pretty full-on yeah (laughs) but he was credit to him trying to normalize it for everybody he would come in in the evening and we would have family dinner we were one of the few families that you know would sit together at the table and so, in the ward. Yeah, in the ward. So my son would meet the other mums, the other babies, and, you know, 
he was going through some stuff, as you can imagine, mm. um, but just tried to make it as normal as possible. Mm. He's going to have to, uh, it would have a big impact on your husband as well. Definitely. You know, as a, I can only imagine as a male, you like to try and fix things and here's something you can't fix. Mm. Um, but then at the same time, I'm sure, you know, having somebody else help. Yeah. I mean, that stint in hospital was seven weeks. I sort of came out for a bit and then went back in because I had a psych- psychotic episode. So, you know, when I came out, you know, again, this amazing high nurtured mm-hmm. and then the big low of trying to get back into society and, and do it on my own. Um, I, you know, the paranoia kicked in again, sleep deprivation kicked in again. I felt like, yeah, people were after my kids and I ended right. up going back in. So, um, you, so what, what, were, what were some of the features of this full-blown psychotic? Uh, was it just one big event or was it lots of things leading up? It was up? leading up to it, yeah. yeah so In the days that you I just I just fell back weeks. to the old habits and I, you <clears> know, I went from this amazing supportive environment to just being back in the house with just me and the kids and my husband at work and trying to function, it's, you know, for some people this can take a lifetime <laughs> to get well. So, you know, it was certainly fast-tracked, but um, the sleep deprivation, that was a big, it's always been a big one for me and my well-being. That started kicking in again and then this paranoia, more extreme than previous, I felt like I was... Um, being watched and followed and there was an organised crime unit trying to get kids and and then I ended up meeting a girlfriend for a coffee and some guy was taking photos and a backpack and I kind of lost it at him because I thought that he was taking photos of the, the, I don't know, it was just, you know, I see now the irrational, you know, picture but um, my girlfriend said, you know, and she was actually a fellow mum in the hospital with me. Yes. And she had stayed in for her full stint for six or seven weeks. So she she sort of could see that I was maybe going, leaving a bit early at the, at the time, but my husband had to get back to work. We had to pay the mortgage. We had to feed the kids. Um, and she said, I think you need to go back to hospital. And it was like, you know, during these times of crisis, and when you can look back in hindsight, you, there's a series of events and a series of people that um, shine like angels, you know, in walks one of the previous nurses into the coffee shop <laughs> that was, yeah. that was um, there with friends and, you know, we basically saw her, told her the story and, you know, she could see I wasn't in a good way and she said, look, I'm prepared to take you in, otherwise we'll have to call an ambulance and it will be involuntary. Right. And so I had both kids with me and um, we all went in back into hospital. And, again, diagnosis changed again because then I had to take medication, which was antipsychotic medication, and that that was really full on as well as antidepressant. And, what was um, the impact of that, taking that? I don't know if it was the depression, anxiety, was so deep now or the medication, but I just was, I just felt like you know, a 
truck had run over me. It was so hard to do things now, so hard to get motivated. Um, I knew I had to take it because it's, it's almost like grounding you. You know, this stuff is heavy, um, you know, so you can't, you don't have your normal gusto. And uh, so because it was an isolated event, it's only happened the once, hasn't happened since. If it happened a second time, they diagnosed it as bipolar. Right. So I haven't had another episode since. So since that time, um, a lot of positive stuff has happened, um, which, you know, completely transformed my life. But um, it was the depths, the depths of darkness there. And yeah. and also I, I'm not on antipsychotics anymore. Right. So that was... Um, so you go back in and you're in for another, what was it, four weeks? Yeah. And was it, is it more of the same of what you did in the More of the same, three? but then, a, you know, different diagnosis. Because of that psychotic episode, <clears throat> more counselling with the psychiatrist. Um, <laughs> you know, and I remember when I was admitted that time, they asked you a series of questions and I just, I don't know what, what date it was, what, Year we were in, you know, I was totally out of my head. Um, and, you know, yeah, so, again, similar program, but then, you know, the next well, there's a real focus on that transition back into um, back into real life yeah. after that. And, did you and then I got, I got associated with, um, you know, psychiatrist in in the community, which is yeah. at Alma Street down in Frio. And so at the end of the four weeks, did you feel like you were ready to come back? Felt, yeah, it felt pretty heavy, <laughs> but I felt like I... I what well, do you mean by heavy? Well, because of this new medication and this new diagnosis, it was it was just different. It's just different because, I, you know, I had that glimpse in that first stay of feeling as good as I'd felt in Canada, you know, with... That nurturing environment and, you know, Heidi so happy and even though I wasn't with Ollie and, and Sammy, um, I just felt so great again and I thought that that's where I had to be. Yeah. But now I realise, you know, it was what it was and mm. and, the, and I got help in, in my home with the kids. So uh, they call it in-home community support where somebody would come and qualified childcare worker would come and help me with the children, um, which, again, had pros and cons. I actually ended up, it was a bit enabling. So, you know, they would come in and I would feel less confidence because these people are professional childcare workers. And then I had an excuse to stay in bed all day because uh-huh. these people would come in and tend to the children and I felt like I wasn't good enough anyway, so I might as well stay in and smoke cigarettes. Yeah, so um, the road to recovery has been a journey. Mm. <laughs> so what, what are some of the key things you focused on to get to build that road? Well, so after I came back out, you know, things weren't getting any better or easier um, and I kind of experienced another decline. Um, kind of reached a point where... We didn't know what else to do. So I, I went back to Melbourne, went back to the, the nurturing family environment, uh, stayed with my sister, who's been another 
guiding light and angel throughout this period of time. And I had the kids with me. Mm-hmm. That was a couple of months. So, uh, you know, again, I had the blanket and um, it, you know, my sister and my brother-in-law were just helping me. You know, my sister was getting up to my kids in the night and my brother-in-law was looking after the kids in the morning so that I could go walk, walk to the beach and go to yoga or something like that. And um, that's sort of where it started. Mm. And then, you know, Back in the family it just really so – I, I also I went pretty hard in Melbourne for that two months. I saw a psychologist for eight weeks every week and he was pretty hard-hitting. He was no messing about because I'd seen psychologists in the past, but this guy, he just – he just really, really tore me apart, but built me back up. Yeah. So we, he knew, we knew that we were, we had to fast track it. And obviously my, my marriage and everything was on the line. And, um, he talked about the opposite of anxiety is taking responsibility. So that was pretty confronting, you know, and. Well, you been, have to take responsibility for everything that's going on. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and, you know, when you're feeling anxious about whatever, do something, just do something, you know, do the dishes, do them by hand. It starts to just change your focus. Um, When I came back again, I knew I started to know things now, like we talked about, you know, that I needed this social network. I needed to tap into the community more. I needed to build these friendships that were on the sidelines trying to get in that I wouldn't let in. You know, that would, you know, had girls dropping me lasagnas after my hospital visits and looking after the kids. And some of them I still haven't yet repaid, but, you know, it's that karma thing. Um, I will never forget those, those people that reached out. And so, you know, there was a whole lot of stuff that had to happen. And I, you know, my driving force was my family. I just wanted it to be better for them. Um, and it was just baby steps. Um, I came back, you know, there was a couple of things I did in the community. There was a Fremantle Mothers group where it was called Time Out for Mums, a couple of hours a week with a, a free creche associated where you just paint, you do mindfulness, you know, qualified counsellor takes you through some topics. Sometimes you just have a cup of tea with other mums. Um, it was fantastic. Um, just a whole lot of things, you know, started get back, back into the fitness then I found meditation and that was the game changer. That was, I've been doing that now since February, so 10 months, nearly approaching a year. Um, that has changed my whole in entire what, life. In what way? So having a method whereby I can clear these thoughts and realising that they are completely false and following that method and letting nature do the work with that. Um, Let nature do the work. How do you mean? Oh, uh, well, so again, it's probably a little bit spiritual. Um, it's a place called Perth Meditation in, in uh, South Lake that I, um, and, you know, I'm not one of the instructors, so I can't really talk about it too much because I'm, I'm just at the moment, I'm just a, a very keen participant and I'm, I'm just following this process. But, um, you know, it's a series of um, guided meditations and um, philosophy behind them mm-hmm. and um, 
it just gets rid of all of these thoughts. Some thoughts that you have, unless you get rid of them, they'll just stay there and they'll fester and grow. And some of these things lead into illness of the mind, the body. Um, with this method, I've been able to get rid of stuff from now, from my past, from my genetic makeup. It's just been so I actually feel a freedom now that I've never felt in my whole entire life. Right. You know, we talk about that jail. Far bigger than in Canada. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because even then I, I worried about what other people thought. Even then I judged people. Even then, you know, this is an enlightenment that I I just can't recommend enough. And, you know, I've been able to see my children, my husband in a whole different light. Thank God my husband stayed, on, you know, on to the ride, held on for dear life. Um <laughs> You know, and, and there's obviously a little bit of residue for him now, given what we've experienced over the past couple of years. Um, and he's got his own ways of um, dealing with some of that stuff as well. Um, and I just try to encourage it and nurture it. And it's a little bit like being reborn. <laughs> right. And that continues. You know, sometimes daily I can feel reborn. I can go to the beach and go for a swim and just it's just like, oh, my God, you know, this is what it's all about. This is what freedom feels like. I've never felt that way. Just totally not having anything on the mind. Excellent. Excellent. So what does um, so, so what does the future look like now for Catherine? What does success look like over the next two, three, five years? So just to continue on the journey, I've um, in the past of a couple of months started a traineeship in disability support care working um, and that started with five sort of full days of volunteer work experience and uh, that was incredible. The feeling that I had both in the workplace and then when I came home, um, I was just like, oh my gosh, this is what it feels like to have a purpose and, you know, now that I feel like I've got so much give to give to the world, you know, I just have to, like, try to channel it yeah. a little bit. Um, and the priority is, you know, my family first and foremost, to channel it with them and then the external world and be the example because what I realised this jail was doing to me, you know, me thinking that my son, you know, I had to be near him all the time or he had to have sleep all the time or this, that and the other, some of that impacts his thinking. Yes. Because that's the example. So the example that I'm showing him by by being free and by um, being content and happy is the greatest gift I could give to anybody, really. Um, and I also feel like, I, I, you know, there's potential for me to help others in the same situation. I, you know, I look at Cert 3 and 4 in mental health and, and that kind of avenue as well. Um, certainly with the disability because I'm now in a position where I'm actually really connecting with people and, and seeing their souls, you know, make, you know, these clients are very beautiful. They've all got something to give and I'm able to tap into that. Um, also the staff as well who um, I think they can see in me that I potentially was born for this role and so I'm getting a lot of support. Um, yeah, it's just so great. So the the next two to five years it's, much of the same, really, just to continue on this journey and, um, you know, I guess the, the professional life, um, the, the, you know, um, 
the community, um, just giving back. So grateful. Hmm. If you could go back um, to um, Catherine before she goes to the Australian Institute of Sports and give her some advice, what would you what would you say? Mm. Just say, let it go, you know, let it go. Go with the flow, let it go. Whatever um, whatever happens, you know, it's, it's nature's course. There's going to be hardships, there's going to be um, triumphs and you learn the most from the hardships and, and knowing that it does get better. Um, and continue connecting, you know, so many people that have once been strangers and now my family. And I think that upbringing that I've had, the ability to feel love and give love with my immediate family is now my community. And so um, just enjoy the, enjoy the ride, but don't take life so seriously. <laughs> <laughs> love it. Love it. And um to the person out there that may be listening to this who's in the maelstrom of of um you know child has come into their life or or the person that's out there listening to this and their partners seems like they're struggling what what sort of advice could you give them uh yeah it's it's so it's just so important to tap in and say yes when people are offering to give you a hand, you know, to, and that's the meditation has taught me to get rid of pride and get rid of judgment and, and to just not be so hard on ourselves and others. And, you know, if somebody's saying they can, they can help you, you, say, well, embrace it and don't be so proud to say no. And, you know, it's not a failure to um, get help. It's just, you know, it's the karmic kind of give and give and receive type of thing. Um, and also early intervention, you know, very, very common and, and find those things that, that get you going, you know, whether it's exercise, whether it's social stuff, you know, for me in those challenging times, that was the hardest thing because I didn't want to be around a group of people. I didn't want to go and see my mother's group who all seemed to be holding it together I don't know if they were or not. <laughs> I did have one girl that said she wasn't and um, that was really comforting and we, we sort of struck up a friendship through that. But, you know, everybody was, we were all going through this stuff together and, um, you know, it, it is really hard. It is baby steps. It is, but the journey is so worth it. And, you know, if you are uncomfortable in those social situations, um, push yourself because it gets easier and easier and it gets better and better. Um, I think, you know, as it's important for everybody, um, every individual, the balance, it's always important to try and strike that balance. So do what, what, what rocks your socks, you know, whether that's going to a music festival or jumping in the ocean every day like you do, Bryn, you know, <laughs> um, and just, just to, you know, just to really – kind of connect with those around us and going back to those old, old, you know, thousands of years traditions of nurturing the village. You know, we've all got our strengths and um, we've all got something to contribute. So um, 
just try and tap into those things. There's a lot of things there that are out there that can help um, a lot of, you know, young mums and also dads. Uh, it's, some dads experience postnatal depression. Some dads experience having a wife with postnatal depression and, you know, mm. even that is a little bit of a, you know, as we know, men, um, you know, this buck up stuff. Uh, get on with it. You can't. You can't Mama. show your feelings. Man up. And it's the same for women as well. You know, sometimes there's this. You got to have it all. You got to do it all. You got to be the best. Um, you got to have the you know the cleanest house and um, the the most you know happy kids. And you know, it's it's all. What is beautiful? What is perfect? Is our imperfections? Mm. You know. So. Um, I just encourage everybody to to really connect and to, you know, sometimes somebody, a stranger, you don't even know, may appreciate a hug. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's just um, there is a, a, there is actually an opportunity to get well, you know. Uh, it doesn't have to be this way and, um you can feel the freedom that potentially you've never felt before. So um, whether it be meditation, um, prayer, you know, it's a spirituality there, uh, you know, certainly have been to church and um, that helped me as well. Then, you know, there's ready-made communities. Um, for me, I think it's, it's a combination of things and, and not to be judgmental of anyone who chooses whatever path that, that they choose. Um, but yeah, everybody's got their story. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Catherine, I can't thank you enough for today. You've been so open and honest in sharing your journey. Um, I, I've been overwhelmed with emotion during it. I was like fighting about the tears at times. Um, I can't thank you enough for sharing it. It's been absolutely awesome to listen to. Um, I'm pretty sure that any of you guys, all you guys out there that have listened to this will have taken tons from it and resonate with it. And hopefully, yeah, you'll look out there and surround yourself with love. Um, thank you very much, Catherine. It's been awesome. Thanks, Bryn. <laughs> Kisses, love. <laughs> ah, that was emotional. <laughs> <laughs>